This is The Drive with Josh Graham podcast. Tune into The Drive weekday afternoons 3 to 7 on Sports Hub Triad. Regarding Saturday's game, I have two questions. Is there a more difficult do-or-die basketball feat you remember watching than what Trey Jones did at the end of regulation? Seriously, I don't even know what the most difficult part of it was. Was it the chest passing it off of the front of the iron, the tracking down the ball beyond the three-point line, or getting the shot off in time to force overtime? I put that right into the same category as the pass from Grant Hill to Christian Leitner completing the shot against Kentucky in the NCAA tournament. I put it right there with the Chris Bosh rebound and kick out to Ray Allen, who positioned his feet so quickly to hit that three for the Miami Heat back in 2013. That was game six against the San Antonio Spurs. So that's one question that I have. And secondly, I don't want to go recency bias the latest thing we've seen is the greatest thing when we talk about a 100-year rivalry of Duke and North Carolina so let's have the recent limited chunk be the question is Saturday night's classic the best Duke North Carolina game of the Coach K Roy Williams era so the last 16 17 years since Roy returned to Chapel Hill in 2003. 336-777-1600 if you want to chime in. I'm biased, but Duke-North Carolina is the greatest rivalry in all of American sports. But here's something that hit me being in the building Saturday. It's still the greatest rivalry without any of the enhancers that boost other rivalries. It reminds me of having a great steak. If you have a great steak You don't need anything else next to it. You don't need to have A1 steak sauce. You don't need to add ketchup, for God's sake. I know so many people who do that. I roll my eyes every single time. You don't need to have it fully cooked if you are having a great steak. That's what Duke, North Carolina is. It doesn't need NCAA tournament meetings. It doesn't need postseason run-ins the way that Alabama and Clemson has in the last five years. It doesn't need to have bad blood necessarily. When was the last major altercation we've seen between Duke and UNC? You'd have to go back to Tyler Hansbrough and Gerald Henderson in 2007, and those two years later did a podcast together. So I don't know know if there's a lot of bad blood there necessarily. Meanwhile, when you look at some of these other heated rivalries, Yankees-Red Sox, you need to have some of that bad blood to get people to watch. The only reason people talked about Kansas versus Kansas State in a national way was because Silvio DeSosa was wielding a stool at the end of that game. We're not talking about Kansas K-State in any other circumstance. Secondly, neither team has ever dominated this rivalry for an extended stretch, regardless of what the records are. I was dead wrong talking about this game on Friday. I thought Duke was going to win big. They proved me wrong. I will own that. But for those who think Ohio State and Michigan is a better rivalry, when is the last time Michigan beat Ohio State? When's the last time Michigan won a national championship? Even with Yankees-Red Sox, 
the Red Sox have done their part. The Yankees haven't won a championship since 2009. So I don't think it really compares. Also, the Red the Red Sox, they've just been more dominant over the Yankees than vice versa. But here's the part I think puts it way over the top. This is the part that made Coach K get emotional on Saturday. It didn't have anything to do with this team. It's the self-identifying piece of this rivalry that makes it special. There aren't many rivalries in sports that are so great that part of the way you view yourself as a Duke fan, as a Carolina fan, as a former Tar Heel, a former Blue Devil, part of your being is your rival. Part of your identity is your rival. All those years, Coach K went head-to-head with Dean Smith. And now he's gone head-to-head with another Hall of Famer who's emulated Dean Smith and Roy Williams. Duke, in a sense, has become Carolina basketball. That might sound crazy to you. But Art Chansky, who wrote the Bad Blood books, the Battle of the Blue books that have sold a ton in this state, have been very successful. He was sitting in the back row of the press conference on Saturday for Coach K. And towards the end, he just brought up the fact that Dean Smith, five years ago Friday, passed away. And Coach K wanted to talk about it and what Dean Smith meant to him and has impacted him as a coach. And here's what he said. I'll be forever grateful to him. Uh, He was the guy who, when they're choosing the Olympic coach in the room, said Mike should should have it. And uh, I'm going to start crying because it's a hell of a thing. So that's the personal side of it. But the self-identifying piece came later in his answer. All right, the other thing I recognize is the loyalty of his players, which we have now, too. We, you know, a lot of that stuff we've tried to emulate from what he, he did. And, uh, and now we have two programs that do it. <laughs> and they both play tonight in, an, in a magnificent game. Coach K getting moved to tears, talking about how Dean Smith coached and how he's emulated that family aspect, the loyalty aspect, it speaks to why the Duke-North Carolina rivalry doesn't need enhancers. It's just the greatest rivalry in American sports. I don't want to hear an argument otherwise. 336-777-1600 on Twitter at SportsUpDryad. Brendan Mark's going to join us from The Athletic as Duke gets set to face Florida State tonight. But nobody really wants to talk about that game because everybody is still focused on what happened and the Smith Center on Saturday night. I think Trey Jones' uh, shot, it was the most difficult do-or-die basketball feat I've ever seen. Like, if you and I went into the parking lot, Robert, or we went into a local gym, how many times would we have to try what Trey Jones did in order to execute it? Is there anything in basketball that comes close that needs as many variables accomplished by an individual to happen. Like the Christian Leitner shot, Grant Hill, half of it was the pass. The rebound from Chris Bosh kicking it to Ray Allen. All of this was orchestrated by Jones. Hitting it off the front iron, tracking down the rebound, hitting the shot. I've seen nothing like it. So this rivalry that has given us so many memories, 
I'm just in awe. I was in the building. I still am today. I'm just in awe how this rivalry continues to give us things that leave our jaws dropped. Yes, Aaron. Reggie Miller's 95 playoff back-to-back threes come to mind. Back-to-back threes, and don't forget, I think it was John Starks who missed two free throws. Got the rebound over Anthony Mason. Right, and Reggie Miller gets fouled, so I think if my memory serves correct, he had eight points in either nine or 11 seconds. That is correct. Eight points to win that game for the Knicks, but to the point I just made with the Trey Jones uh, Christian Leitner comparison here. How many variables had to play into it? Was it Anthony Mason who turned it over, like on the baseline, who threw it away as a player went down? I think for him so, to have yeah. the step back three. So we had the two threes, but so much had to happen that was out of Reggie's control. But he stole the ball. He stole the inbounds pass. He did. Went right back to the and, three and point. He, and line. he hit the free it's throws. Phenomenal. Right. See if you can find on YouTube, Robert, because it's one of my favorite things that's ever happened in 30 for 30. John Stark's reaction. John Stark's reaction to Reggie Miller's play. I think he had a very memorable line that on the 30 for 30, it shouldn't be hard to find. But that's one piece of it. The Trey Jones aspect. 336-777-1600 is the phone number. I'm trying to remember exactly what John Stark said there. I think he said, did this dude just did this? Is the line that sticks out. Is this the most memorable, or we'll just say the greatest, Duke-North Carolina game in the modern era of Duke-North Carolina basketball? We'll just say in the era of Kay facing Roy. It's funny. When I tried to recount some of the great games, one of the more memorable finishes we've seen over the years, Duke authored many of the wins. Austin Rivers hitting the shot, the overtime game with Tyus Jones scoring nine straight points for the Blue Devils, Jaleel Okafor in overtime. That was the first game since Dean Smith passed away back in 2015. You had the comeback in the Smith Center with Grayson Allen, with Brandon Ingram. Those are all Duke wins. Also, also you have... Last year's game, Zion Williamson hitting the put-back shot to put Duke in the lead in the final five seconds. That was in the ACC tournament. Two really good teams. I was lucky enough to attend that game as well. The only one that was a late-game North Carolina win that I could think of, dramatic, memorable game, was the Smith Center and Marvin Williams hitting the shot in 2005. Brian Ives from ESPN Stats and Info actually chimed in on this and said... Roy Williams, when he beats Duke, has beaten Duke with North Carolina since returning in 2003. The average win has been by nine points. So there haven't been as many dramatic finishes at the end of the game that have resulted in Carolina wins over the year. So I've narrowed it down to, I think, three. Maybe we can do four here. Memorable games, based on all the responses I'm getting. I think it's the Austin Rivers game. It's the one we just saw on Saturday. It's the 2005 game in the Smith Center and the ACC tournament game where Zion Williamson got the game-winning shot late. Those are the four, I think, qualify as the greatest Duke-North Carolina games played between Roy Williams and Coach K. 
That's what I'm narrowing it down to. In terms of difficult feats, I've gotten everything from Kyle Guy making all three free throws late in that Final Four game against Auburn. Michael Jordan shots over Elo and Russell. Those are often mimicked. Let's blow through these calls very quickly. Let's go to Stewart. Stewart in Greensboro is with us. Stewart, give me the best Duke North Carolina game between Coach K and Roy. Oh, between Coach K and Roy, well, if you're a Duke fan, it would have to be uh, the one we just saw um, last night. If you're talking Duke Carolina altogether, probably the best one for Carolina would be one of these three. I would say the Walter Davis shot, the Montrose blood game in the Smith Center 92, or the Capel shot 95. Yeah, the Capel shot. That's definitely a great one. Thank you, Stuart. I could care care less about Duke's victories being a Carolina fan. (laughs) Thank you for the phone call. Um, Eight years to the day. Saturday was eight years to the day of Austin Rivers, game-winning three, and it was 25 years to the week. Jeff Capel hit the shot that forced second overtime. But, of course, as Stewart mentioned, North Carolina ended up winning the game. Who did we learn the most about in the Smith Center Saturday? Brendan Marks from The Athletic will join the show to discuss next. Sports talk. Saluting the fellow sportsmen. If you're talking about it. I'm talking truth. We're talking about it. Who are you talking to? Sports fans everywhere. This is Radio The Drive with Josh Graham. On the way. No. Long rebound. Tapped out. Controlled by Goldwire. Jones with three. With two for the win. No. Tapped up by Moore. And in at the buzzer. Moore makes it in. And the Blue Devils win it. That's David Shoemate from the Blue Devil Learfield IMG Sports Network. I remember going up to David after the game ended on Saturday. This is probably an hour after things uh, finished up in the Smith Center. I simply asked him, were there any voice cracks in the final moments? He said, dude, I don't know. Well, it turns out there might be a couple in there, but I think certainly we'd be understanding of it, considering how shocking things were on Saturday night. We're now being joined by Brendan Marks from the Athletic Carolinas, covers Duke and North Carolina. He's on Twitter at Brendan R. Marks. Brendan, who did we learn the most about on Saturday? I I don't know if we learned the most about this guy, but maybe we got the best reminder of the fact that Trey Jones is the person who makes Duke go. You know, I think a lot of people nationally, locally, see Vernon Carey, see his production, and think this is the guy who Duke absolutely by no means can afford to lose. And that's very true. He is essential to Duke making any sort of postseason run this year. But at the same time, Vernon Carey fouls out with four minutes left, Duke down 13, and the Blue Devils are still able to come back, and it's because of Trey Jones. He is the leader of this team. He might not be the alpha and the best scorer on this team, but gut punch time, gut check time, Trey Jones is the guy that Duke relies on. I think a lot of people had forgotten that about him, and Saturday was a perfect reminder of, of why you can't discount him. 
I'm just going to give you a list of surprising things that happened Saturday, aside from the obvious at the end of regulation with Trey Jones's shot and also Trey Jones missing a free throw, leading to the missed shot that he'll probably call a pass 10 years from now that Wendell Moore finished to win the game. You let me know which of these is the most stunning, and these are things that maybe we forget after the fact. Walker Miller being at the free throw line to put North Carolina ahead in overtime, a Duke Carolina game. He played only two minutes a game going into Saturday. Cole Anthony, his turnover at the end of regulation that Jordan Goldwire stripped away, leading to the Garrison Brooks block. Matthew Hurt and Vernon Carey, both of them in foul trouble. Four fouls in six minutes for Hurt. Carey, 18 points in the first half, none in the second. Fouled out at the under four timeout. Then you also have the efforts. I think it almost felt like the Wizard of Oz for North Carolina, where this is like what you wanted the dream sequence to look like with Leaky Black, Christian Keeling, and Andrew Playtech playing well. Heck, Miller giving you things. But despite the supporting cast being great, reality sets in. It looked like it was just all a dream. Duke ends up winning at the very end of the game. What was the most surprising piece, singularly, from what transpired in, in the Smith Center? You know, I think a lot of people will point to Walker Miller, and that was sort of crazy to see in real time. Here's Walker Miller, two minutes of the game, in overtime with a chance to potentially give UNC a lead over Duke. Uh, that that was insane. But the thing that I'm going to say is is really more so about the way UNC supporting cast sort of stepped up for the first time all year. I mean, Playtech and Keeling and Pierce, I think, uh, collectively you can sort of group them together and express how much of a disappointment they've been this year. And, you know, I don't want to pin UNC struggles entirely on them. I don't think that's fair. But certainly uh, their failure to produce at times is something that has directly and indirectly led to UNC losing some games. So those guys stepping up in the biggest game of their season so far, playing the way they did against guys who are far more physically talented, just far more, far better in general players. Um, I thought that was incredibly shocking. And for UNC fans, it must have been so hard to see because if these guys had played like this on a nightly or even weekly basis, there's a chance that North Carolina is not in the position it currently is. We're getting a lot of response to a question I asked earlier today. Was Trey Jones's play at the end of regulation, that sequence where he intentionally missed a, foul, uh, missed a foul shot, tracked down the rebound, and hit the shot at the buzzer, the most difficult do-or-die basketball feat we've seen? And we've gotten a lot of things. Christian Leitner, the Ray Allen shot in 2013, Robert he said right before we came into this segment, the Kawhi Leonard shot, you can't get that shot to fall the way it did against Philadelphia if you tried it a hundred times, him falling away. Someone else said LeBron James, his winner over the Raptors a few years ago in the playoffs. How many times would it take Brendan Marks in a gym to try and recreate what Trey Jones did Saturday night? Josh, I can say with full confidence that we'd be back in the the Dean Smith Stadium in the Dean Smith Center next year before I was able to successfully accomplish the trade jump. Would you die in that gym? If you had to do that in order to get out of the gym to get food, would you die in that gym? I'd like to think no. I'd like to think no. And, and here's the thing, because I would learn from Trey Jones and I would take two steps to the right and I'd throw it to a better look. That easy. Um, but, going, but going back and watching the video again, him the, the coolest part of it to me it's not the shot. It's not the throw. It's him going and getting his own rebound. Um, you know, to, to be able to have that tracking ability, uh, that, that part is super crazy to me as well. Brendan, before we let you go, was Saturday night good enough for you? Because I remember right before the game we were chatting, you were like, man, it's, uh, 
I want to get out of here as soon as possible. Man, I got plans. We got to do things on Saturday night. I got a feeling that it was a late night for you Saturday. It was, certainly. But you know what? If there was ever an opportunity for my plans to get spoiled, I would want them to be spoiled that way. <laughs> with, with one of the best college basketball games of the season. Really, that game, uh, that this rivalry is the reason why I came back and joined the Athletic. It's the reason I wanted to cover college sports. It always delivers. People will say that it doesn't. It always delivers. It delivered again. And I'm an idiot for thinking anything otherwise. Brendan, I, I hear things in the background. Are you at Duke, Florida State? I am. I'm right outside Chusevsky, Phil, and things are starting to get rowdy. All right. Well, hey, you, you, you take care of yourself. Be vigilant, and we'll talk soon. Sounds good. I'll talk to you. All right. That's Brendan Marks at Cameron on Twitter at Brendan R. Marks. You could try getting your sports news and talk somewhere else. My life sucks quite enough already. Thank you. Best to leave it right here on The Drive with Josh Graham. Brian Geisinger of ACCSports.com is in with us now. And BG, there were countless shocking details with Duke's win Saturday. So much so, I bet some of them have been forgotten by many Tar Heel fans, Blue Devil fans, or anybody just watching on at that classic overtime win. What would you have said to me, BG, if you and I were having a discussion Friday and I told you, in a 91-91 game in overtime, Walker Miller was going to go to the free throw line and put North Carolina in the lead against the Blue Devils. I think I would have been pretty surprised, but not completely shocked given North Carolina's rotation this season and given just how willing Roy Williams is to uh, to go to deep parts of his bench. However, to your point... Yeah, I mean, it would have uh, it would have taken us a little bit by surprise, like, right? Why is this person in at a critical leverage moment of the game? It would have been like one of those movie record scratch moments where you just get the image of Walker Miller towing the line. Then it's like, whip a whip. That's the best record scratch I have, Robert. Do you have a better record scratch sound for me? Not not on tap, but no, I, not on tap. Like a, Aaron, do you have wicker, one? Wicker. Did this a little better? Let me hear yours again. Wicker whip. It's about as good as I, I can do it. it. All right, there you go. <laughs> like you're you're, you're probably record. so do do that one more time. So you're probably wondering how I got here, and then they'll explain the entire game. I can't wait for the thirty for thirty. Maybe we could put that out there. Walker Miller averaging two minutes a game going into Saturday, and he had a go ahead point in overtime at the free throw line. So you don't find that one to be very surprising. How about this one here, Cole Anthony, his turnover at the end of regulation. I haven't heard anybody talk about this today because of what transpired after that, but it was 83-81. Cole throws it away. He's stripped by uh, Jordan Goldwire, who got a piece of it, and Goldwire dishes it to Cassius Stanley, and Garrison Brooks makes a hell of a play. He he blocks him underneath the basket. Mm -hmm. Playtech gets the board. He gets fouled and hits one of two before the Trey Jones sequence, but (laughs) I think in a normal... Uh, game. This is probably something we're laboring over for hours that Cole turned over the basketball there. But today, no one seems to care. Yeah, I think even even though people are going back and looking at some of Cole's sort of like late game, and he had a couple head scratching plays. But really, the big one was with about with a little under two minutes left. UNC was up seventy nine to seventy, and yeah. he took a he took an early clock shot. 
and Duke pushed it up, and Trey Jones hit AOC on the break for a three that made it. It went from a nine-point to a six-point game with about a minute 45, I think, left after that, and it was all triggered because Cole took a really... I think Cole played pretty well Saturday, all things considered. I thought at times he was really impressive. But um, late game, yeah, he had a couple decisions offensively and then some possessions guarding Trey where uh, he was maybe not quite up to his standard of play. Lastly, how about Matthew Hurt committing four fouls yeah. in seven minutes in the game made him a non-factor altogether, or was four fouls in six minutes? Vernon Carey, as great as he was in the first half, he had no points in the second half, fouled out at the yep. under four timeout. These are things that just become details that we forget about as time goes on, but that's crazy and shocking in its own right considering Duke won on the road in Chapel Hill without Carey scoring in the second half, him fouling out late, and Matthew Hurt being completely a non-factor. It goes back to what I've said on this show and, and a few other places this season and, and we've written about some too, but like it goes back to Duke's depth. And I've, what I've been saying is it's not just the fact that they have 10 good players you know, five or six of whom will play in the NBA eventually. It's that they can play so many different styles, and they have a coaching staff that's willing to play different styles of basketball and tailor the offense to those styles of play as well, too. But, like, Hurts a non-factor. Well, Duke basically plays small with four guards around Carey, even though he's sort of struggling to score at times in the second half or for throughout the yeah, entire second half dealing with foul trouble. But it's also... In overtime then, too, or really, it's the last nine minutes of the game if you want to factor in Carey fouling out and then overtime of Duke just playing five guards on the court at the same time. And UNC's got two good big guys in, in Brooks and Baycott and them just saying, yeah, come at us. And Wendell Moore Jr., it wasn't just um, him being opportunistic on the offensive glass. He was battling guys in the post defensively. And and I'm just, I, I think that goes to one of the strengths that Duke has. And if you're trying to make a case for them, as a Final Four team this year, obviously it starts with the with with the talent, especially Carey and Jones and Stanley too. But it's just that their depth and versatility is um, it, I don't know if it's quite unmatched in the ACC because Louisville and Florida State can move move pieces on the chessboard around a little bit too. But it is something that differentiates them from a lot of teams in the country. I, I just want to know what you made of Duke starting the game small and then being able to rally in this game with the small lineup. Remember, Matthew Hurt started this game on the bench. They they went with Jack White, Wendell Moore, and uh, Vernon Carey as the front court, if you can consider Moore mm -hmm. a wing, small forward type. Um, I, I thought that was interesting because I thought with Cole Anthony starting at the point without B-Rob in that backcourt, the real issue would be rebounding the ball so I thought if Trey Jones was responsible for Cole the big concern would be how do you rebound misses how do you control the team that is number one in the country in rebounding in North Carolina so I was surprised to see the small lineup and more so how successful it was despite Duke falling behind in the early part of the game how effective they were late when they had to play small yeah, they, I mean, this is something they've done before in the past, but and you got to remember too, like that when they put out some of these smaller guys, and it allows them to switch some defensively too. Like, they're the athleticism of some of these guys. I mean, Stanley is is notable, but Trey's a really underrated athlete. Trey Jones, and and so is so is Wendell Moore Jr. for for that matter too. And you know, they just they when they do that, they say yes, we're gonna be a little bit vulnerable on the glass. And UNC they rebounded thirty two percent of their misses in this game. That's a pretty good number. 
but Duke still gets to dictate the terms of play, right? They open up driving lanes. They get to switch more defensively. And we saw when Kerry went down, they basically stopped running pick and roll. I charted this game. They ran one pick and roll the final nine minutes of the game after Vernon Carey ended. It was all transition, running with those guards. It was all isolation, spreading the court and driving right at Christian Keeling, right at Cole Anthony, guys that had played, you know, 40-plus minutes at that point. And I think that was part of what made the difference in this game as well, too. It's Brian Geisiger with us here. He's on Twitter at bgeis underscore bird. Read his stuff. At accsports.com, you will see his rankings, my rankings, DG's rankings tomorrow at accsports.com, 1 through 15, where we have uh, the uh, our weekly ACC rankings uh, from top to bottom. Last uh, October, we had the preseason poll, and I went back and revisited that. Do you remember where North Carolina was picked? Oh, uh, At the top, I'm sure. Second. Yeah. I mean, they were – I mean, this team on paper coming into this season was – set up to be a, a monster, right? To look like what they did last night. Yeah, for for, for for portions of the game, for sure. But even that, I, I was sort of expecting... I mean, it, it, you sort of said this before I came on the show, but, you know, Leakey got off to a good start. I expected this kind of performance from him all season, plus shooting, plus, like, the three-point shooting. I, I, thought Ke- I thought this is the version of Keeling you'd see more, but even he's still so dependent on the mid-range. It has been all season. Leakey, for that matter, too. Um, I think I also underestimated just how much they would miss Cam Johnson and his ability, not just to be out there and be a guy that makes 40% of his threes, but having someone that can go out there and run around screens and bend and move the defense without the basketball. Like, especially when Brandon Robinson's out like he was Saturday, they had to take Cole off the ball and run him off screens to try to get him a couple, they did this a couple times during the game, try to get him uh, looks off the catch because they don't have a ton of like movement range shooters on the roster right now. But yeah, to like, to your point, like this team, I thought they were going to be awesome. I thought they were going to possibly win the league and and contend for a Final Four. Like I I wrote about that extensively in the preseason, and I could not have been more wrong. The drive is being broadcast live in the law offices of Timothy D. Wellborn Studios. Learn about all the ways Tim Wellborn can help you online at timwellborn.com. You'll know when you need us. Brian Geisinger in with us from accsports.com. If you have any questions, tweet us at SportsHubTryon, 336-777-1600, the phone number. Up next, fair and unfair criticisms of officiating. And uh, on top of that, I do think that... uh, there is, There are interesting elements to the national coverage of this classic game. We'll get to those next. Come here to talk sports. It is man at his most man. And do it like you mean it. Mm, what you got, Biatch? This is The Drive with Josh Graham. Hot takes. Bring them. It's time for us to get crazy. We do it at this time every single week. None of that cold bleep, just hot fire. Let's dive headfirst into it. Brenda Mark's going to join us a little bit later on. Covers Duke and North Carolina for The Athletic. Let's get the hot takes. Crazy! 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 If you have a hot tank, we will reward you with this sound. What's funny is there are so many details to Duke, North Carolina, that if I said, if we did this segment on Friday and I just pointed out 
the details that actually happened, they would have worked out to be hot takes. Like, let me uh, give you an example very quickly. You want the horn for this? If I did this on Friday, do you think this would qualify for a horn? Like, Trey Jones would bank a shot off the front of the rim, grab his own rebound, and hit a shot at the buzzer. Talk about do. If that was on Let's Get Crazy last Monday, I think I'm getting this sound. <laughs> Vernon Carey doesn't score in the second half. Talk about do. Fouls out with four to go by Andrew Playtech. Walker Miller plays two minutes a game, goes to the free throw line in a tie game, 91-91, and hits a foul shot to put North Carolina ahead of Duke. I think all of those things would just be nuts. 336-777-1600 is the phone number. The whole Duke North Carolina game is a let's get crazy segment. Let's go to Justin, who's up first. Justin, let's get crazy. I think the one-and-done system should be dead. All right. Thank you for the phone call. I don't know if that's very hot. Like, isn't the thing going to die? Everybody hates the one-and-done. Who likes it? That's pretty cold. Or maybe maybe lukewarm, like a nice bath that sat for about 10 minutes. Yeah. I think we could do better than that. 777-1600 is the phone number. Bring that hot fire. Aaron, let's get us started. All right. After watching the XFL yesterday, no, actually, scratch that. Later that night, I watched some cornhole. You know who I saw on cornhole? Evan Leppler. No, I saw Sam Darnold and Daniel Jones. No way. I did. How'd it go? I'm not sure because I realized I was watching cornhole and I changed the channel. Evan Leppler, who's been in the studio, broadcast cornhole on ESPN. He is. He gave. He gave me a frisbee. Cool guy. He mentioned that. Neither Sam Darnold nor Daniel Jones will be the starting quarterback of their respective franchises in two years. Whoa! I actually played Ryan Finley in cornhole one time. How'd that go Beat for him. you? Beat him and Jermaine Pratt, high point. Uh, high point kid. Beat them head to head. All right. I got this one here. The Oscars were last night. And... I feel like Quentin Tarantino, who says he has one more movie left after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's going to do his 10th and final movie on the Duke-North Carolina game, except North Carolina's going to win at the end. You know how, I don't want to spoil Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but he changes history a little bit, let's say. And in Glorious Bastards, it's a different way a different end to the Nazi regime than I think history reflects. Maybe things will change differently. I don't know how it will become more entertaining, the Duke North Carolina game, under Tarantino's guide. Would somebody get blown up with a sawed-off shotgun? I don't know. There does need to be a 30 for 30 done on this. Like, it starts with game day going to Chapel Hill, people saying it's going to be an awful game. They're going to have a cut from my radio show where I say it's a blowout for Duke. And then it's the jersey part of this, the 100-year anniversary, the game itself. Like, I already see the 30 for 30 coming together. And Tarantino's going to win an Oscar for Best Director and also for Best Picture with this movie that comes out about the Duke-North Carolina game. Robert, let's get crazy. 
Phillip Rivers is going to sign with the Bucks and take them all the way to the NFC Championship game. I like how you won't go the next step and say the Super Bowl. Nah, you can't. I'm not going to go that crazy. I still have a little bit of integrity. But, I mean, if the Bucks go all the way to the, champion, the NFC Championship, that's pretty hot. Got to win the NFC South probably to do that. For sure. Kevin. Kevin and Winston-Salem. Let's get crazy, Kevin. Kevin, go. Go, Kevin, go! Kevin don't want to go. Kevin, we need your take! Sean. Hey, Sean! Sean, go! Carolina's now a football school. Oh! <laughs> that was Sean in Greensboro. Let's go to Kevin in Winston-Salem. Kevin, you're up! I like the picture of Kevin screaming while we're saying his name. Kevin, go! Cole Anthony declares for the draft tomorrow. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about, Kevin. Now we are piercing with hot fire. Your ears are burning here. I don't know why I just sounded like old Vince McMahon with the XFL. <laughs> this is Let's Get Crazy. Taylor Swift is one of the most overrated, is the most, not one of the, is the most overrated artist of our generation. What? Oh! I want to hear your justification of this. Uh, her dad bought 300,000 of her CDs when she started her career to get her first album to go platinum. The last two years, the Oscars hasn't had a host. Kevin Hart is going to host next year's Oscars. Oh, wow. That is the best choice, right? Like, they haven't had it the last two years. That's going to become a story. Kevin Hart, like, are you not going to watch what his monologue's going to be? After not being able to host the Oscars yeah. in 2019, that seems like it's going to be a really good bet. Aaron, let's get crazy. Antonio Brown, after watching P.J. Walker put on a dazzling performance for the Houston Roughnecks, <laughs> will sign with the Houston <laughs> Roughnecks to play XFL football. Yeah! Yeah! If he signs with the Roughnecks, A.B., I'm buying a damn jersey. You would buy an AB jersey? I'm going to buy an AB Houston Roughnecks jersey to go with my Roughnecks hat. This is a Roughnecks radio show, so we're all about it. Robert, let's get crazy. Women fights in the US, or UCF? Or God, bless America. All right, you, let's just cut that out in post. We'll yeah, do this again. We'll fix it all. <laughs> Hold on. Let me, uh, let me set the recording up. One second. All right. Women fights in the UFC are more entertaining than the men's. This weekend with Shvesnikov, that chick was throwing feet around all over the place. It was like Tarantino's dream, man. He was enjoy he would have really enjoyed it. And whether it's her, Cyborg, or Ronda Rousey, way back when, these fights have done better and been more entertaining than the men's fights. 336-777-1600 if you want to play along. We're getting crazy. Trey Jones, lottery pick. Oh, wow. I saw in mock drafts that he is 20th and 21st in two respectively, which doesn't have him as a lottery pick. But this just comes to show you the exposure college basketball gives kids. It's different than what you're getting overseas. So you can't convince me that college basketball's ratings machine, these big games that Zion played in, didn't help Zion, who wasn't the top-ranked player going into last college basketball season. It actually was R.J. Barrett and Cam Reddish ahead of him in these in those rankings. When it comes to Trey Jones, him no longer being with Zion, R.J., and Reddish, 
it gives him an opportunity to stand alone. And that shot he hit against North Carolina, really the run he went on, scoring 15 straight Blue Devil points, I think that put him on the radar of many NBA scouts. This is a softer draft. Remember last year, it was kind of surprising when Cameron Johnson got picked and he was a lottery pick? That might be something we see, but it's Trey Jones, who is a wonderful kid. He's younger than Cameron Johnson was, and he stepped up in a massive moment the way his brother did in Cameron five years ago. Aaron, let's get crazy. Sticking with the XFL, the Houston Roughnecks put such a whooping on the Los Angeles team yesterday, the, the Los Angeles squad has already fired their defensive coordinator, Pepper Johnson. Pepper Johnson. The new defensive coordinator in Los Angeles will be Panthers bust Vernon Butler. Vernon Bustler. I'll go a step further. You know who's trying to get into coaching? Former Panther not bust. Luke Keekley is going to be the Houston Roughnecks new defensive coordinator. Why are all your takes Roughneck related? Because I love the Houston Roughnecks. <laughs> also, the game was Saturday, not yesterday. The football's played on Sunday. I'm confused. <laughs> uh, does anybody have anything left? That's it. I'm out. Aaron, close us out. Antonio Brown is going to fight Logan Paul. <laughs> uh, you yeah. put out a diss track today. It all ends when Logan Paul's brought up. Why does everyone hate Logan Paul again? Uh, he did that thing in the Japanese forest. It was like the suicidal forest. Oh. And he was like, hey, look. And he showed Bunch someone. Bunch of dead people. Yep. Not great. That's yeah. when it all started. I mean, he's just the worst anyway. So, I, I don't know anything about YouTube stars or yeah, streamers. Like, you guys were talking about this earlier today. We went to lunch and you brought up a streamer's name. And I'm like, who is that? Uh, Sawyer did. He brought up Tifu. You guys were laughing at me because I didn't know it. Oh, Sawyer's all about it. I'm sure he is. He says it's the most famous person that knows him, that he's friends with. Tifu's pretty famous. Right. Say some old man stuff right now. Not going to. I'm you gonna just resist. did. I'm going to resist. <laughs> Young people and the joy of winning, expressing themselves. Coming up, where I was wrong and firsthand observations from the Smith Center on Saturday that you're not getting anywhere else. This is a Monday draft. You could try getting your sports news and talk somewhere else. My life sucks quite enough already, thank you. Best to leave it right here on The Drive with Josh Graham. Spend all your time waiting Duke is going to beat North Carolina convincingly in Chapel Hill. Carolina was outstanding. I, mean, I thought they were going to run us out of the gym. Their crowd was great. I, mean, I don't know what's happened the whole year, but they were Carolina tonight. I don't think it's going to be a very exciting game. Jones, can he get a shot off? Yes! Jones knocks it down to tie. Jones! I think Duke's going to jump out big, 
and I think they're going to win this game by more than 15 points. Wendell Moore with an enormous play with about half a second to go. Banks at home for the Blue Devils, who rallied late in regulation, blew a lead in overtime, fought back later in overtime, got the benefit of a no call, and even after a Jones miss on a broken play, found a way to make a bucket and win this game. I had real problems with Parasite. I didn't understand its worldview. I didn't understand what it was trying to say. And I'm not talking about the language barrier. Uh, it, 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 I, I, nothing resonated for me. It, it, I didn't get it. And the Oscar goes to Parasite. Was that a drive-by of Mike DeCourcy? Don't you ever, ever, ever slant or look sideways at the Joker again. He was—he didn't like the Joker. He didn't like Parasite. He didn't like anything that won. So you know what? Slandering a Hall of Fame sports writer and Mike DeCourcy. I deserved all of that criticism. If North Carolina ended up winning today, I'd imagine today is dreadful. But I have some observations, some firsthand stories from that game on Saturday that I care to share with you now. Starting with... The moment Vernon Carey fouled out of the game. Talk about the under four timeout. I started searching for GIFs and clips on Twitter to make fun at myself. I found videos of clowns working in offices. Like, I wasn't paying attention to the next minute and a half of the game because I was only focused on doing some type of damage control for my awful take on Friday, doubting this rivalry. So I was preparing to get embarrassed, even more embarrassed than I was there saying that this game wasn't going to be exciting, that it was the most exciting game, the most exciting finish we've seen probably in the latest era of Duke Carolina basketball with Coach K going up against Roy Williams. I was very conflicted watching this game. Conflicted because I wanted to be right, but also, I, when I watch games, people ask, who do you root for? I usually tell them, I want the team that plays better to win. It usually stings. It hurts me when I see teams that play better than the other side lose, that play with more effort, that play with more passion, that do the right things and lose. That's why it was dissatisfying to me to see San Francisco lose to Kansas City in the Super Bowl. San Francisco, they were better than Kansas City was. North Carolina was better than Duke was on Saturday, but they lost. And in that sense, it was very dissatisfying to me. So I was conflicted in that way. But the other thing that had me turning the scales a bit, in addition to just wanting to be right, there was a fan sitting behind me who heckled me the entire damn game, Robert. I'm not kidding. This guy singled me out and just started saying, Hey, Twitter guy. Hey, hey, hey Twitter. What's your name? Josh Graham? Hey, hey Josh Graham. Are you going to tell everybody how Coach K's a cheater? Guy's belligerently drunk. Student or not? <sighs> I don't think he was a student. Probably a little bit older. He was in his 20s. But as soon as I sit down, he goes, Hey, are, 
I got a good tweet for you. You should say that uh, Coach K, he should be investigated. Like, how does he keep getting these number one classes coming every year? The entire game, this guy would say, I got a good tweet for you. Alex O'Connell's a douche. Like, <laughs> the entire game, he was doing this, and it made me want to see Duke win. I wish he would have tweeted it. The most satisfying thing about that game for me, personally on Saturday, the entire second half, his target, the person he was making fun of, wasn't O'Connell, wasn't Jack White, wasn't Vernon Carey, it was Trey Jones. He just kept saying, Trey Jones is scared. He's he's scared to take the shot. This guy's scared. Like, even when Trey's starting to go in the run, like late in the second half, Trey Jones doesn't want the ball. Hey, watch. Watch. This next possession, he doesn't want the ball. This guy's sitting right behind my ear. This guy, he doesn't want the ball. He didn't want it. Nope, he didn't want to shoot. And then this entire game, I haven't acknowledged him. I haven't said anything to this guy. When Trey hits the shot that forces overtime, I don't know what he looks like. I just turn around, I make eye contact with him, and stare at him deadpan. And he puts his head in his hands, and I turn back around. Hey, like, hey, Carolina fan. Hey, I got a, I got a tweet for you. Shut up! <laughs> and then when he was leaving, he said, I'm going to go to my grave saying that Trey's scared to take shots. And I said, yep, I made sure to tweet that. That's what I said to him. The only words I said to that guy, yep, made sure to tweet that out. Those Carolina fans, for that game, it's always that game, are so much worse than the folks at Cameron. They are. I've had this on my chest. People say that the, the crazies, they're obnoxious, they're the worst. The Cameron crazies, they at least are organized in a sense, and some of them are shrill. Some of them are annoying in the sense like, there's this one lady, every single time Jack White gets called for a foul, she's always behind me, is yelling, leave Jack alone! And that gets pretty annoying, but I'm not the one getting heckled. They're not heckling me. This Carolina fan decided to make me the subject of his heckling. Hey, I got a good tweet for you. It's a good idea here. Brendan Marks is going to be with us on today's show. You can tweet us at Sports Hub Triad. I did go into the locker room, though. Had a chance to catch up with Trey Jones and with Wendell Moore. And I do think this is going to be remembered as the Trey Jones game. I think that's what this is. He created the iconic moment that's going to be remembered, even more than Wendell Moore hitting the buzzer-beating shot. He created the moment like the river shot, like the Jeff Capel shot. It was eight years to the day to the river shot, 25 years to the week of Capel tying the game and forcing double overtime in Cameron. He did it like his brother did. Remember, Tyus Jones, North Carolina was leading in Cameron in 2015, the first game Duke played Carolina after Dean Smith's passing. And Trey had to score nine straight Duke points to force overtime five years ago. And... That's exactly what Trey did. He scored nine consecutive points at the end of regulation. Then he added six points after that in OT. So I went into the Duke locker room. It's festive, as you're about to hear. And I just asked Trey, hey, what does it mean to you to be in that company now, to submit yourself into this rivalry in such a way when people bring up Austin Rivers and they bring up your brother and they bring up Jeff Capel, 
they're going to bring up Trey Jones now too. And this is what he said. I mean, that, that those stuff really motivate me. Um, my brother being in this position a few times, um, watching Austin Rivers, like you said, watching everyone who's been in this in these, in these moments, that stuff motivates me because being in the moment myself, um, I want to I wanna be like those guys. As for Wendell Moore, he hits the game-winning shot. I noticed, though, and you can watch the video and see this, I noticed in real time a delay in his celebration. Everybody else is celebrating boisterous and loud, the Blue Devils coming off the bench. Wendell, it took a second or two. I That stuck with me immediately watching in real time. So I brought that up to Wendell, and it might have been nothing. Turns out it wasn't. I found this answer to be interesting from Wendell Moore Jr. on his game-winning shot. Right now, I mean, I didn't even know it went in, uh, honestly, because I had turned around. I, I think I fell on the ground. And I saw everybody running at me. I, I tried to get up and run away, but I slipped. Somebody up tackling me. And it was it was a great moment, though. You included the hot take on the Oscars, or excuse me, Mike DeCourcy being dead wrong about Parasite. I am a huge moviegoer. I've made that clear. That was the most satisfying Oscars I've watched in four or five years. You probably have to go back to Spotlight winning in 16 for the last Oscars I thought was this satisfying. But it wasn't even just Parasite being recognized. It was also Brad Pitt getting his moment. It was the first time he won an Oscar. And I don't think people realize that. He wasn't... uh, awarded for seven or for 12 monkeys wasn't awarded for some of the other great roles he's played over the years but he gets his moment right from the jump and I thought that was really cool it was a pretty neat moment to see a former NFL player Matthew Cherry a wide receiver get the award for best animated short film And it's just fitting he's a former NFL player to get that award because that's the same award Kobe Bryant won a few years ago, and he dedicated it to Kobe. In fact, before winning his profile picture on Twitter is of one of his kids and Kobe Bryant. And in 2016, when he got finished playing, he actually put out a post saying that, hey, I have this idea that might be an Oscar-winning idea. He quote tweeted that after winning last night and said, nailed it. That's pretty cool. And it was called Hair Love, a very cool animated short that ended up being the Oscar-winning film. Parasite's just an excellent movie to root for. I saw our, our morning show host, Clay Travis, suggesting that if the movie was made in America, not South Korea, it wouldn't have won Best Picture. I can't disagree with that more than I do right I can't disagree with that enough it is a movie that had limitations put on it limitations because it has subtitles because it has a director who doesn't speak great English that didn't enhance it I get Clay's argument hey they're trying to do the most politically correct thing okay if that's the case why didn't Roma win last year Roma was also the favorite to win a year ago. It was a Spanish-speaking movie. There was no English in it. 
And if you want to do the most politically correct thing that with things that are related to American culture, why not a movie that's based in the state uh, in the city of Mexico City and uh, and go that route? So I couldn't disagree more with the notion that the reason Parasite won was because of being politically correct. It was just an amazing movie that we're going to remember years from now if you get a chance to watch it. I was cagey on watching it. I, I'm not a big fan of international movies. I don't like the subtitles. I'm honest in saying that. I'm not going to be the guy who's elitist saying, oh, foreign films, you have to dive into all of them. No, that's not me. But Les Johns, who covers Demon Deacon Digest, said, Josh, you're going to forget about the subtitles five minutes in. And he was right. And I watched it twice, and I think it's a tremendous movie. And it's well-deserving of the Oscar. I thought for sure they were going to give it to 1917. That's the way I felt. And it was going to be a bit of a dissatisfying taste with the Oscars because that's what we've seen really the last decade or so. Look at the 2000s, that decade, and the 90s, the best picture winners, and compare them to the best pictures that have won in the last 10 years. It's not even comparable. In the 2000s, you got No Country for Old Men. You had uh, The Departed that won one year. You have Million Dollar Baby that won in a given year. Just heavy hitters each and every year in movies. This past decade, it's been The Shape of Water. You had Green Book, The Artist. These are not movies that are going to be incredibly memorable. And I think it dates back to 2009 when they started expanding the field and having preferential voting where you have nine Oscars Best Picture candidates versus five. I think the door being open to nine versus five has watered down the quality of Oscar winner. So I wasn't really optimistic going into last night they'd do the right thing because of the way I felt after 19, uh, or after uh, Green Book won and after The Shape of Water did. But they did it. They, they chose what I believe to be the best movie last year. I didn't think it was going to happen. That's why my pick was different than what ended up being the winner. But I'm so glad it ended up being Parasite. I thought it was a really cool show and a very satisfying Oscars. You are listening to WSJS Winston-Salem, WCOG Greensboro, WPCM Burlington, WMFR High Point. Those signals making up Sports Hub Triad.